Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad to be with you all again this morning for Bible study. I have a new setup today, a few new things, and so hopefully we're not going to have any of the tech issues that we had last week. Everything should be nice and smooth. So we are back for week number two with our study of the apocalyptic books, Daniel and Revelation. Today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter two and three. And so I hope that you have read a bit ahead and are pretty familiar um, with what's going on. So we're going to open with a quick prayer in just a second, but a few housekeeping things. I want to remind you that we want to stay in touch with you about this Bible study. And so if you are not on our email list, please send us an email either at info at stmichael.org or you can see Meredith Rose's email address either in the comment fields here or on our website at stmichael.org slash RBS. If you've received an email from Meredith this week with a reminder of today's study, then you're on the list. But if you haven't and would like to be, we want you to be. We want you to know what's going on and what we're studying and keep in touch with us. And so do join our email list. Also, as we are still doing this only digital, no, nothing in person, I want to encourage you to invite your friends to join us in this Bible study. What that means is if you are using a social media platform, if you're not streaming directly from our website, but if you're on Facebook and or YouTube, then let us know or let others know that you're on this study. So share this link. Actually click the share button, put it on your own wall and let others know that you'd love for them to join you on this study each Wednesday. Finally, we pray for one another here. And if there are any prayer requests that you would like us to have specifically for this study, please do email Meredith Rose. Her information is going to be down below in the comment thread. And we will make sure that we pray out loud for anyone who is wishing for prayers that we keep this community not only a good study, but also good support in the best sense. Let's open with a prayer and we will get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the gift of this day, for the gift of this life. And we ask that you help us to empty ourselves. Help us to put down all the things that weigh on us, that stress us, that cause us anxiety and worry. Help us to put those things down for this next hour, that we can make space inside for your spirit to fill us up that we can be inspired by the work you have done throughout the centuries and continue to do through each one of us and through this community in the world you love. Today we hold before you all those who need your healing touch the most, those who are ill, those who may even be near death. Be present to them, surround them with love and lift them up with our prayers. As we look to study your word, may each one of us be inspired, ending this study changed in the good way so that we can help be your hands and feet in the world as we extend your kingdom. All this we ask through your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. So we are ready to kick off. Last week, we looked at the first chapter of Daniel, and we talked a bit about the exile, the way that the Jews found themselves in exile in Babylon. And we got quite a few really great questions from last week's study. And so what I'd like to do is kind of start with a few of those questions, get some clarity around a few of these issues, and then we'll jump into the study itself. So we got a few questions. Um, Diane Johnson asked just a bit more about the Babylonian exile. So one of the questions that she asked um, is that usually it sounds like all the Jewish people were taken into Babylon, but she understood today that it was really sort of the cream of the crop taken into Babylon and would just like to hear more about that and who was left and how perhaps the people who went into exile thought about the people who were left. Brilliant question. If you think about the Babylonians, they wanted control of the region around them. In effect, they almost wanted a buffer zone so that the other major empires of the day, particularly think of places like Egypt, Persia, 
that they sort of had a no man's land, so to speak, between them and these other empires. So in case another empire was going to come and try to attack them, they had a chance to defend themselves. So when they went down into Israel, Israel was probably pretty easy to overwhelm, all things considered. They weren't quite as well organized, I suppose, as you would find in a nation like Egypt. And so when they went down into Israel, they effectively decapitated that culture. They took the priests, the lawyers, um, the healers, the teachers, all into Babylon. But they didn't want everybody. Because effectively, if you take everybody, then you've got a lot of mouths to feed, and that's expensive. And the Babylonians weren't interested in really genocide. They simply wanted to protect themselves. And so when they went down into Babylon, they more or less took all of the leaders from that culture back to Babylon with them. That's where we get Daniel and his compatriots. They're described as kind of royalty. That could mean a number of different things. Um, but effectively, they're young people who are connected to the ruling families in some way. And ruling could mean money, trade, religion, law, whatever. Everyone else, and by everyone else, I mean clear majority of the people who were in the southern kingdom of Judah were left in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, this presents a very interesting predicament. Most cultures are led by a small group of people, and most people actually don't mind that. Most people are very comfortable kind of following a good leader and trusting that leadership is making good decisions about the future and that trust is extended all the way down the line. Now that can obviously be abused. We, that's a different conversation. But when that works, it works well. If you can imagine taking the top 10% of the leadership out of any culture, the people left, the 90% left, would begin to sort of fall apart in the organizational sense. Now, they're not dumb. They know how to keep themselves alive. They know how to grow food and make clothing and that sort of stuff. But when it comes to guiding principles and organizational principles, economic principles and the like, most of those things kind of fall apart. That's what happened with all of the Jewish people left in Israel, in the land of Canaan, right? Once the top leaders were taken away. This is very important for us to understand because much of the, uh, what, not struggle, that's not the right word, much of the conflict between the peoples on the same land that we see in the Gospels and in other parts of the New Testament really root itself in this moment. Leaders went off to exile. They were in exile for one entire lifetime, right? You're talking solid 60 years, maybe 70, depending on how you measure it, before they return back to the land. So you're talking about a group of people who are highly energized to structure and organization and philosophy and religion and all the other stuff. So when they're in exile, they're trying to answer these very important questions about where God was or where God is, what did we do wrong, how can we do better in the future? And as they begin to answer all of those questions, they create a very elaborate structure that will guide them in the future. So if you fast forward a few hundred years to when Jesus is alive, what has happened as a result of the exile is that the leaders that are in exile in Babylon begin to create what Jesus' time knew as the extremely thorough, very well-defined, very well-structured Jewish legal system. When Jesus comes on the scene, one of his primary teachings is that the law has kind of gotten in the way, that God wants us to live lives that are good and moral and ethical and faithful, but that those morals and ethics and choices that we are to make are actually kind of simple. And when we make those choices, that lifestyle, too complex, the complexity actually begins to be what we worship rather than God. 
And so one of the things that Jesus did was he ate with tax collectors and he healed on the Sabbath and he did all that stuff that was not legal in the Jewish sense. But Jesus said, excuse me, why would God limit doing the right thing? Okay, so that is a little bit of a connection. One of the other big things that happens is the relationship between those taken into exile and those that stay. So those that stay, stay not out of their own choice, but just because they weren't taken. They are still Jewish in their identity, but 70-ish years without formal leadership means that what they are, the, the way that they begin to practice that Jewish identity looks very different than it was before the exile and will look radically different than what those in exile bring back with them. Because they've got 70 years of philosophical development and theological expertise, while the people back home, so to speak, have just been making ends meet. So, in our Gospels, we have moments with groups like, for example, the Samaritans, right? We remember that story about the Good Samaritan where Jesus tells a story of a person who gets robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road. And then you've got these two upstanding Jewish leaders that pass by one at a time and they move to the opposite side of the road. They don't really want to be near that person who is bleeding and hurt because they don't want to be made unclean. Like the law that they have created means that if they were to try to help that person, they would be made unclean, ritualistically unclean. Well, here comes a Samaritan, a Samaritan who stops, who tends to the wounds, who transports the wounded to a home and pays the owner of the home to look after him. Why in the world would Samaritans be perceived as lesser than these good Jews? Because the Samaritans root themselves in the Jews that stayed. So this is one of those very interesting moments in history where you get a branching off of different Jewish groups. Samaritans were ethnic Jews. The only difference is they were Jews that didn't accept or inherit all of the legal, theological, philosophical structures that returned after the exile. Instead, they're more like just nice people. They're Jews in the general sense of looking out for one another and knowing that they are meant to be hospitable and take care of people who are hurt and take care of people who are in need. So when the Samaritan walks by the person who's on the side of the road bleeding, they know exactly what to do. They need to go and help the person who is hurt. The interesting dichotomy that Jesus puts up there is sometimes through all of our wisdom and efforts, we can actually make what God wants, so complicated that we're living against God. And so on and on, and we can talk about Jesus a bit more, but the people who stayed are the people who actually remain culturally Jewish in one sense, but not the kind of Jewish that will develop after the exile and become the leadership that then Jesus experiences um, when he is alive. Okay, great question. Thank you. Um, we've also got a few other questions. Um, Liz asks, why is Daniel chosen of the four to be a star in these stories? Which is a great question. And one of the things that I had actually prepared to say today, um, so I'll say a bit more about this later. We almost see disconnected stories from one chapter to another in Daniel. In effect, you could take Daniel chapter one and that's one story. And then Daniel chapter two, that's one story. So one of the things we're going to see in chapters two and three is that they almost seem to be completely separate from one another. Daniel's the star of one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the stars of the other. It is almost certain based on the way that this story is told that it was constructed after the exile about stories that were passed down through oral tradition. Daniel and the trio 
are effectively the stars of the book, but in different ways. Daniel is the dream interpreter. He receives the revelations. And so in a sense, he gets more real estate in the book, which is why the book is named for him, because there is just more to tell about that revelation. The trio, however, play a very critical role in the lessons that we can learn from this book. It's just that they're not quite as impactful when it comes to the revelatory identity that Daniel owns. The trio is really more examples of faithfulness and courage. And we might say examples of, for us, in our own Christian discipleship. And I'll say more about that soon. Um, lastly, we got a great question from Karen about a comment I made last week around the idea that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And she just said, would love to hear more about that at some point. And so I'm going to tag that idea because I do want to say more about that. And we're going to cover that when we talk about the fiery furnace. So let's go ahead and jump in chapters two and three. We have four sections to today's study. The first is the dream. The second is the dream's interpretation. Third, we're going to talk about the golden statue. And fourth, the fiery furnace. So effectively, first two parts are going to be chapter two. That is the king's first dream and the interpretation. And then we're going to jump to chapter three with the golden statue and the fiery furnace. All right, jump on in. Chapter two of Daniel, verse one. Let's go. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was agitated, but his sleep came over him. The king said to summon the diviners, chanters, charmers, and Chaldeans to explain his dreams to the king. They came and stood in attendance before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is agitated to know the dream. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Long live the king. Tell your servants the dream and we'll explain its meaning. The king replied to the Chaldeans, a firm decision has issued from me. If you don't make known to me the dream and its meaning, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses turned into rubble. But if you explain the dream and its meaning, you'll receive a reward and gift and great honor from me. Now, explain to me the dream and its meaning. <laughs> Jump to verse 10. The Chaldeans replied to the king, there's no one on earth who can explain the king's question. Thus, no great king or ruler has asked a question like this of any diviner or chanter or Chaldean. The question that the king is asking is so daunting that there's no one else who can explain it to the king except the gods, whose home is not with humanity. At this, the king became furious, very angry, and he said to put to death all Babylon's experts. Okay, we'll pause there and unpack this. Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream and he wants it interpreted, but for some unknown reason, Nebuchadnezzar tests all of the people in his court by not telling them the dream. So typically what would happen is that an, in the ancient world, a person would have a dream. They would tell someone, a diviner or a magician or a seer, what the dream was, and then that person would interpret the dream. The idea that someone would actually say to another, hey, I had a bad dream. Why don't you tell me what the dream is and its interpretation is basically unprecedented. So it's very interesting that this is the way that Nebuchadnezzar would operate in this moment. So let's talk for a second about dreams in the ancient world, because that's important for us to understand, kind of get on the same page. People today dream and they understand, I would say most people understand that dreams are somehow moments where our minds are working things out. And we can put a finer point on that if, if we need to, but effectively in different ways, stuff that worries us, stuff that excites us, stuff that, you know, just engages us in some deep way often show up in dreams. And those dreams can sometimes help us to make sense of things going on in our lives. Now, we know, neurologically speaking, that when we dream, I mean, when we sleep and when we sleep deeply, our brains are 
kind of reforming themselves. They're in a state of healing while we sleep, which is one of the reasons why sleep is so critically important and why if someone can't sleep, they'll actually die within a few days because it really messes up the brain chemistry. Brain doesn't get a chance to heal if we don't give it a chance to sleep. In the ancient world, dreams were not understood as effectively moments that are working out the stuff that worries us. Instead, dreams were believed to be these thin places where humanity was able to somehow glimpse the divine, the gods, heaven, whatever you want to say. In those ways, most of the time, dreams were believed to be hints at what should be done, or perhaps even occasionally, glimpses windows into what might happen in the future. So when a good dream happens that is strange but oddly clear, then people can perhaps know what's coming in the future. Now, we saw that last year when we um, studied Genesis together. Pharaoh had the dream of the seven fat cows and the seven skinny cows and on and on. There are a couple different versions of this. And Joseph came and interpreted the dream as we're going to have seven really excellent years with huge surplus and then seven really lean years where people are going to be starving. And so Joseph was able to lead Egypt in a process of saving all of its extra grain. And then in the seven years where there was famine, Egypt became super wealthy because they were able to sell all their excess grain to all of the nations around who all of the nations around who really weren't able to grow their own food because of the famine. Now, that's the same sort of issue that's happening here with Nebuchadnezzar. He has a pretty clear dream, and that dream is needs to be interpreted, and Nebuchadnezzar seems to understand that the dream is going to be helpful to determine what he should do in the future. Now, asking his special counselors to know his dream without him telling them, as I noted, is pretty unprecedented. So Nebuchadnezzar brings his wise men together, says, tell me my dream and interpret it, or else I'm going to kill you. The people say, or his counselors say, there is no possible way we can do this. And Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. Let's keep going. Verse 13. So the decree went out and the experts were to be killed. And they looked for Daniel and his companions to kill them. Daniel responded with shrewdness and judgment to Arioch, the king's chief of police, who had gone out to kill Babylon's experts. He replied to Arioch, Royal Marshal, why is there the severe decree from the king? Arioch, made the thing known to Daniel, and Daniel went and asked of the king that he might give him a time, and he would explain the meaning to the king. Then Daniel went home and made the thing known to his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, for them to ask for compassion from the God of the heavens about this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be put to death with the rest of Babylon's experts. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision by night. So Daniel worshipped the God of the heavens." So this is a very interesting moment. We'll pause there. Daniel hears that all these people are going to be killed, which does include Daniel and his friends. Instead of running or trying to defend themselves, Daniel sort of places a bet on God's uh, care for Daniel, of God's ability to save Daniel and says to the court, to the king, if you just give me a little time, I'm going to be able to do what you asked the others to do that they couldn't do. And so Daniel effectively gets, what, a night or two or at least one night because Daniel goes to sleep and the king's dream is revealed to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel then worships God. This is a very interesting moment because I imagine that Daniel's friends would have probably liked to have run, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But Daniel says, let me just go to sleep. We'll figure it out. God's going to come through. God's going to help. 
Let's move on to the second section where Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar, now knowing his dream. Skip ahead to verse 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. Remember, Daniel had a new name. The king said, are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Skip to verse 31. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Skip to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. My, my, Daniel really gets right at the king. Let's put this in perspective. Nebuchadnezzar is a great leader. Nebuchadnezzar effectively is king over the Babylonian empire for about half of the empire's lifespan. Nebuchadnezzar really takes it from small to big. He's the one who takes over Assyria. He's the one that goes down into the southern kingdom of Judah, takes all the people out um, who are in leadership, brings them back. And he really establishes Babylon at this period of time as being really important and strong. Effectively, what Daniel says about this dream is that empires rise and empires fall. Nebuchadnezzar is part of the empire rising. However, he's going to be followed at some point by people who don't do as well as he does. Effectively, Nebuchadnezzar's going to be succeeded by people who just can't hold the empire together. And so what he has seen is his golden head, followed by a lesser but still good silver successor, and on and on down to at, at finally at the bottom we get the feet made of clay. And as we know about a statue, if the base is weak, the whole thing will fall. Effectively, Daniel is predicting the fall of the Babylonian empire. This is a really critical moment for Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel has tapped into Nebuchadnezzar's concern for his legacy, for the empire that he built. Of course, we know that relatively soon after, Cyrus of Persia will overwhelm Babylon and then free all of the Jews to return back to Israel. It is almost certain that when Daniel was finally written down following that oral history, they had already returned to Israel. So they knew what was going on. So it's makes good, good sense, systematically, that the people who tell the story tell the story in a way that indicated the truth of Daniel's interpretation. Did this happen? Eh, probably. I mean, was Daniel a person? I think so. Was Daniel a counselor and a dream interpreter? I think it's very likely. Did it perhaps come down quite so cleanly as this? Meh, I don't know. It's not that important because I think what really is most important about this story is Daniel's relationship to God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar represents an ancient understanding of the way that humanity related to the divine. There was this sense that there were lots of gods and that gods or God, depending on the culture, were fickle. 
and could either treat you well or treat you badly depending on their moods. They might get jealous, they might get vengeful, who knows. But that gods could bless and gods could destroy. Here's the one thing about the ancient world. There was no sense of a relationship to God or the gods. What we see in this story of Daniel is that Daniel has a clear understanding of a relationship with God. It's not just that God, Yahweh, is strong. And it's not just that God knows all and can certainly know what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. What we see with this moment in Daniel, that little pivot, is Daniel didn't know what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know. But Daniel had a relationship with God and trusted that if God wanted to, God would reveal the dream to Daniel. Now, this is one of those moments where do not worry about whether it literally happened like this. Not the point. The point of this story is the example we see of Daniel's faith in God. And what we're going to see is that echoed in chapter 3. There is a faithfulness in God that Daniel and the trio have that is really something quite new on the scene. This is not like the other ancient cultures. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't entirely sure what to do with this. So we have this moment in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar has a wonderful experience with Daniel and understands that Daniel's done something quite remarkable. So let's close out chapter 2 by looking at verse 46. After Daniel interprets the dream, we get... King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar has gone from relative lunatic to someone who has understood the power of Daniel and his friends, but really the power of their God. Now, I've noted before, and so it's worth repeating, Monotheism, as we understand it intellectually, is not really a thing yet. Um, And I say that with the caveat, I'm going to try and resist going down this rabbit hole trail. We believe, we are monotheists, right? Christians, Jews, Muslims, we are monotheistic. There is one God. But we also tend to slide into this way of understanding, like even in the language that we use, um, like one of the questions I get whenever I'm on an interfaith panel or discussing different um, religious traditions, someone will inevitably say, do you think we all pray to the same God? And that kind of question reveals that just under the surface of our sort of cultural monotheism, we actually still kind of think that we have a God and they have a God and is it the same God and it's all just God. There's only one. And thinking that there are multiple gods to pray for kind of undermines the monotheism. In the ancient world, there was this clear understanding that every group had some understanding or connection to the divine. And so the Jews had Yahweh, but the Babylonians had their own gods. And the Jews would have thought that the Babylonians' gods existed. Now, they would not have believed in that faith sense in the Babylonian gods, but would they have thought that there were Babylonian gods? Absolutely. They just thought Yahweh was better. And so in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar is coming to realize that even though he has faith in or believes in his pantheon of gods, Yahweh is something special. Daniel has shown him that Yahweh is this 
powerhouse who can really do something remarkable, perhaps even better than his own gods. So he falls in worship of Daniel and his gods. And it gives Daniel this moment where he can seize the opportunity to become more important in the king's court and bring his friends along, right? So we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get put over all the affairs of the province of Babylon, which effectively makes them like regional managers or governors. And Daniel remains in the king's court as a direct counselor for the king. This is a pretty good promotion for Daniel and his friends. All right, so we're going to pause there. That's the end of chapter two. And a quick reminder that I do love questions. And so do please make your comments um, below or to the side, wherever you're watching, and let us know if you have questions. And as always, if you have questions you would like to ask, but don't feel comfortable putting them in the public comment field, or you simply just can't think up a question on the spot and you need a little bit to think, then you are free to email Meredith Rose. Her email address should be somewhere in all of that. Or if you're on our email list, you can reply to her and ask a question either during this class for the next 25 minutes or afterwards, and I'll collect them and hopefully get to those questions next week. So do let us know. Oh, and let us know you're here. I always love going through the comments at the end of class and just seeing who was here and what you were thinking. Even if it's not a question, there's a comment that you like or something, or you maybe you see a friend who's there, say hi. This is an opportunity for us to connect with each other since we can't really be physically together like we want to be. Let's seize this digital opportunity to check in with each other. All right, so that little promo break, we're going to step ahead with chapter three. Chapter three is a story that I think we all know well. We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are put in a really difficult position, threatened with being burned alive, and they stay faithful. I really debated bringing my VeggieTales video to show you all today, and I figured we really don't have time for it. Um, but I'm gonna put a link to this video in the comment thread, because if you have not seen the delightful episode that depicts this chapter three story from VeggieTales, you need to, it will make you happy. So I'll put a link in there at some point later today. So let's start with chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. We'll stop there. I want to invite you, in case you're not, to understand that this is a ridiculously silly story, all right? Even though this is presented as being uber formal, its formality almost makes it comic, right? The whole list of all the important people that have to go out kind of in the middle of nowhere to look at this statue. And then the list of all the musical instruments that are gonna play at the dedication of this statue and everyone has to fall down or else they're going to be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, of blazing fire, not just a hot place. I mean, this is drama, right? Drama to the max. And it's meant to kind of set Nebuchadnezzar up as being a little goofball. Now, we have no idea what the statue is. I'll just say that. But we do know that the statue was ridiculously big. So if, if the cubits are cubits as we know them in the ancient cultures, you're talking about a golden statue that is minimum 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall. That is gigantic. 
I mean, you're talking, I mean, as big as it gets. And in the ancient world, basically impossible to have something that tall, that heavy, made of gold, trudged out to the middle of nowhere and set up right. Okay. So it's meant to be just a little, a little much, right? Hyperbolic, so to speak. One of the things that is very interesting about this story is that we don't immediately know who's going to be the main characters, right? We don't know where Daniel is. We don't know where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. And what we will find out very quickly is that Daniel's just not here. So maybe Nebuchadnezzar and all of the leaders have gone away from the city and Daniel's hanging back. But then where are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're not here. They're going to be sought after. And then the story kind of gets rolling. So let's jump ahead. Verse 12 and see what happens. There are people who have gathered. I'm sorry, I should put this. The courtiers, all the important people have come out. And they, of course, are going to fall on their face to worship this golden statue. But they also know that not everyone's there. And so they say to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 12, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Ooh, that's strong. Nebuchadnezzar is obviously a, an absolute narcissistic maniac, right? He is completely consumed with himself. And what do absolute narcissists do in leadership? They make everyone worship them. They create moments of conflict that make no sense at all in order to test people in their fidelity to them. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue for no apparent reason that represents nothing important and puts it out in the middle of nowhere simply to make all of his people fall on their face and worship. Not because Nebuchadnezzar really cares, but because Nebuchadnezzar wants their fidelity. He is testing them to make sure they don't fail him. In this moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also tested. They are given this command, point blank, from the king himself. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his testing, makes sure that they know if they don't follow his rules, if they don't worship exactly the way that he wants, he's going to kill them and kill them painfully by burning them alive. Now, their response is sort of amazing. And that's what I want to focus on. Verse 17 and 18. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue. This is amazing because what this trio is saying is that they believe that God can save them, but their faith in God is not dependent on whether or not God saves them. Do you hear that? 
Let that sink in. This is profound. For us in our own discipleship, in our own desire to follow Jesus, this little moment where this trio responds to a mortal threat is powerful. They say, we believe in God and we believe that God can save us and we will be faithful to God whether God saves us or not. Whoa. How many of us have ourselves been in incredibly precarious, dangerous, threatening positions, or perhaps seen people we love in those kinds of positions, and how many of us actually put to God effectively an ultimatum, right? Where we've gotten a terrible diagnosis or someone we love has gotten a terrible diagnosis, they've been in an accident, and on and on. And we say, God, we believe you. And we want you to heal this person, to save this person, to save me. And then, whether we intend it or not, our own faithfulness is dependent on whether God does or does not save. Now, this is a moment that we will not be able to resolve right now, but one that I want you to bookmark in your own mind and in your own heart because this is a wildly important idea for us to vet in our own lives. Now, many of you know that we're in this discipleship series here at St. Michael, and I hope you will join us for that over these next two months. What's important about giving ourselves time to work through major issues like this one is because we need to take opportunities when perhaps we're not threatened and we're not feeling the full weight of our mortality, to wrestle with ideas of faith like this. What would we do in their shoes? Or if you've been in their shoes, differently, but similar, what have you done? How many people do we know that walk away from church, walk away from their faith life because they didn't get the result from God they wanted? Here in this moment, this trio is saying, we are certain that we can be saved. But if God chooses not to, our faith is still strong. That's pretty powerful. Let's keep going and look at the way that this story ends. Actually, before we jump into that, I think it's really this caught me thinking when I was taking notes the other night. I see my little bullet here about this. Um, do you all remember the old, um, what would Jesus do? You know, I don't know if you remember this, but I was, I am of the right age where when that WWJD thing kind of came out, um, that was, gosh, I was like 14, 15 when the whole thing took off and we would wear those bracelets and we would talk about it. And although it, kind of became a little hokey, it is absolutely important for us to see that the model that Jesus puts forward to us is one that should guide us in the decisions that we make. When we are faced with trials, tribulations, heartbreak, pain, tragedy, actually the whole, what would Jesus do is quite powerful because in this moment, we know that Jesus lived very similarly. Jesus did not test God, but Jesus had faith in God and God was either going to come through or choose not to. And we see that even in the garden, right? Where Jesus in bleeding sweat says, I really don't want to do this. And I wish you would take this away. But if this is what I'm supposed to do, I will do it. And I kind of feel like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this moment are having that same sort of feeling. Like, come on, God. I don't really want to be burned alive, but our faith is going to stay strong because we believe there's more than just what we see here. And we trust. We trust the end. All right. So, Nebuchadnezzar, let's keep going. Verse 19. 
Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. That's kind of funny. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men fell down bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. And he replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire and satraps, prefects, governors, king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not touched, had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not harmed and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. It's a pretty amazing moment. Their faith is what kept them safe. God came through. And we know that even if God hadn't come through, their faith would have stayed strong. Nebuchadnezzar, in the face of such strong faith, recognizes that their God is something special and that they are to respect the Jews in their gods. Now, you might be asking, uh, isn't this basically the same story that we heard in chapter two? You would be right. Effectively, Nebuchadnezzar says, I am super strong and everyone should bow to me and I'm going to kill people who don't bow to me. Daniel comes along and says, wait a second, I need to explain to you what your dream means. And then Nebuchadnezzar is stunned by Yahweh's power then it's as if that kind of didn't even happen. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I am so powerful and everyone has to bow to the statue or I'm going to kill them. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come along and say, listen, our God is strong enough to save us from anything that you could ever do to us. And our faith remains in Yahweh. And then Nebuchadnezzar is stunned by how powerful Yahweh is. <sighs> A close reading of this, or I hope at this point, with years of studying together, you might say to yourself, why two stories that basically tell the same truth? In the construction of biblical books, many, especially in the Old Testament, aren't written when they're first told. So people would have seen, borne witness to, or heard about this story in real time when it happened and would have told the story over and over and over for decades, decades, maybe even over a century, before it's finally written down close to the form that we've received. Those stories become pretty big and become pretty sensational as they're told over and over again orally, but the truth of the story remains the same. And it's very likely that there were stories about Daniel, and there were stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what a writer did is they kind of merged them together, made Daniel and the trio friends, colleagues, neighbors, whatever, and tried to kind of thread their stories together, almost like a string of pearls, one story after another after another. What we will find in the book of Daniel is that it's not really one big narrative arc, but instead a series of stories that 
kind of tell the same story over and over again. Differently, it's a different version of the story. But when it comes down to what do we learn from this? How can we be inspired by this? It's mostly the same. So I'm going to pause there because I do see that we've had a few questions asked and want to try and get to them in these last five minutes. So we had a question, is there one God or just different ways of worshiping him? And that's very similar to what I said a few minutes ago, where we as Christians, <sighs> let me qualify this. There are Christian groups, certainly, who actually fall under an umbrella of dualism, not really monotheism. And by that I mean, there are Christian groups who very faithfully and very truly believe that there is effectively a two-God structure in the world and in the world we cannot see that fight together, where we basically have God, who represents good, and we've got Satan, who represents bad. And we get this God versus Satan stuff in the world. And we are caught in the middle, right? We sort of get this angel devil on our shoulders, or we find that we are kind of being pulled like um, tug of war back and forth between this good and this bad. That's not the kind of Christian theology that I choose to believe in. It's not that evil is unreal. Evil is very real. And evil has an energy and a weight and a momentum to it in our world, for sure. But evil is not its own dark God. Evil is really the absence of God. That's me. My belief is something that is genuinely monotheistic, single God, single God. When our sinfulness, our bad choices, our giving in to temptation draws us away from God, we find that the absence of God is very powerful. And it's God who saves us from a life that is void of God. And we can say more about that at some point, but that's a very shallow scratch at a super complicated idea. Sally asked a question, um, is this meant to recall the burning bush at all? Fire that burns but doesn't consume. That's a great question, Sally. I really hadn't thought about the bush wasn't burned the trio wasn't burned. Um, I absolutely think that the writers would have had that in their mind, for sure. Moses and the story of Moses is absolutely pivotal for all the Jews at this point in time, right? Moses and that whole story is the anchor that binds them to God in that real tangible way. And so anything that sniffs of Moses' story is going to be powerful and is going to become authoritative. And so fire that does not burn is a brilliant example of this. Um, I think the way that Daniel's stories are told or the stories in the book of Daniel are told, effectively, Daniel and the trio, sometimes together, oftentimes separately, experience very genuine trials. And it's their faithfulness in God that helps them survive the trials. But as I've noted, it's not just faith in God because God did something. It's faith in God whether God does something or not. And that's the little nugget I hope you take from today. That's a, an idea that I want you to wrestle with because it is not easy to define our lives in faithfulness to God, whether God acts or not. Because I think for most of us, faith in God is even in, even in the smallest ways, some kind of transactional, right? I've always, I've, I've used 
divine vending machine as a way of describing how many people kind of lazily and unintentionally think of God. If we put the right change in, right, if we put exact change in the vending machine, we're going to get the thing out that we want. So if we pray the right way, do the right thing, act the right way, then we're going to get out the kind of experience, the kind of life that we really want. That is the root of the struggle that people have with why do bad things happen to good people? Because it seems like good people equals exact change. And if good people, the exact change are put in, why would something wrong come out? Why would something bad come out? And what we see in today's lesson is something so very powerful that calls us to a faith that is detached and disconnected from God's perceived actions. All right, my friends, time's up. I got to let you go. I love being with you all and so glad that you have been here with me. Um, please say hi in the comments. Check in with one another. We're still quarantined in some ways. So don't let your friends or your neighbors feel alone. Use your gifts to check in and spread some love because that's what this is all about. Email your questions, make them in the comment field. Even after this video has stopped being live and replays, we will check in and get your questions. So make them known. And I will see you back here one week from today, 1030, as we continue the book of Daniel. God bless you all. I hope you have a wonderful week.